Welcome to another episode of the Journey Podcast. The Journey Podcast is all about sharing the journeys of purpose-driven individuals from all walks of life who are following their passion and fulfilling their purpose in their own unique way. And I'm your host, Risa Kawamoto. In today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Vish Chatterjee, an accomplished executive-turned-coach with a spiritual twist and author of The Business Kajol Yogi, Take Charge of Your Body, Mind and Career, which I highly, highly recommend. I first came across Vish in 2020 through Akanda Yoga, where I studied for my 100-hour yoga and Ayurveda training. It was a New Year's Eve gathering, and Vish was talking about planetary energies in 2021, and I was fascinated to learn more. So I booked a Vedic astrology consultation with him, and I also took an introductory course on the Vedic astrology with him as well. I then also booked a series of coaching sessions with him, which blew my mind, as I never had any coaching sessions delivered quite like him. I really love the combination of coaching, yoga, Ayurveda, and what Vish calls karmic advising, where he uses the Vedic astrology to provide advice on the current planetary influences on your life and the life period you are in. In our conversation, you'll hear what his childhood was like living in Hong Kong and moving to America, where he studied and developed his career. This was also where he built his unique business, where he coaches and advises business leaders through a unique blend of Western management thinking and Eastern wisdom traditions. I hope you enjoy this episode. He has a lot of wisdom to share and I'm sure you'll learn a lot from our conversations. Hi Vish, welcome to the Journey Podcast. Really excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you feeling today? And also, can you share with us where you're joining from as well? Hi, Risa. I am uh, Vish Chatterjee. I'm joining you from Los Angeles, California. I'm in a town called Redondo Beach that is normally sunny and warm. But today we have some English weather. (laughs) It feels like (laughs) London. We have rain and wind and cold. So it's very unusual for us, but (laughs) we're going through an English weather period. Wow, nice. Um, because I'm always envious with the weather in LA. So I'm glad that you're actually having English weather today. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, when it gets below, I guess, below 20 Celsius, people start putting on big overcoats and big earmuffs. They get really, really cold. <laughs> well, I prefer warm weather and I love, I, I lived near the beach in Japan. So I'm always envious speaking to people living near the sea so yeah <laughs> and you're actually also my first guest on the podcast who are joining from us i've been mm. interviewing people in england so yeah it's nice to have someone from the other side of the world joining and talk to us yeah. today i would love for you to first share a little bit about your background and anything you like to share about growing up and early years as well Mm. Yeah, so um, even though I'm sitting here in California, and you may think you're hearing an American speaking, which I am an American, but I actually grew up in a British colony. I grew up in Hong Kong, 
and I went, um, my family's originally from India. My mother and father emigrated to Hong Kong and then I was born there. And so I went through a British style education. In fact, in my school, it was the, if you, if some of your listeners may remember the O levels and the A levels. So that was the track we were on. And then I think it changed to the GCSEs. Um, and I lived in Hong Kong all the way till I was 15 years old. And at the time, um, we had a pretty nice life in Hong Kong. It was, you know, the, it was under uh, British rule, obviously, but the overall lifestyle in Hong Kong was wonderful. And what happened in 1984, Margaret Thatcher came to town and signed the Joint Declaration, which was the, the document that was going to hand Hong Kong over back to China. And we all got very nervous. What's going to happen with Hong Kong? Are we going to still be able to maintain the same lifestyle? What would it be like under Chinese rule? Um, and even though there was fear, nobody ever took any action until 1989 when Tiananmen Square happened. And I remember very clearly, I was probably just, just becoming a teenager at that time, seeing the tanks, seeing Tiananmen Square, and you know, at that, you know, with whatever happened there, uh, most of Hong Kong's expatriate communities, all of us that were foreigners, said, we have to get out of here. This is a very dangerous future for us. And so we looked uh, to emigrate, and we ended up emigrating to Canada. So when I was 15, my whole family moved over, left Hong Kong behind, moved to Canada, and sort of started a new life in North America. And my dad always had a vision for me, and I, you know, in, in, in his wisdom, he always said, you must go to America. That's the land of opportunity. We're here in Hong Kong. There's really no opportunity for us here. There's, you know, for, for you as you get older, there's only one university to go to. Um, but if you go to America, there's great education. And so Canada, in a way, was a bit of a stepping stone for us. And eventually, um, I got admission to a U.S. university. So I came to America to study mechanical engineering. I loved fixing things, taking things apart. So I studied mechanical engineering at Northwestern in Chicago and then got a job in the auto industry. And so then I sort of started my career as an automotive engineer, went to business school, got an MBA, and then went into executive management of the auto industry. And then when auto went through a tough time, I switched into the tech industry and uh, was an executive in tech, ran a startup, and finally everything blew up. And I decided that my life calling, my deeper calling was really to coach and teach and help others. And so here I am in Los Angeles, California, originally starting my journey in Hong Kong, um, originally started my journey as an engineer and now as an executive coach and, uh, and an American. Wow, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, so just going back to when you were growing up in Hong Kong, what well, I, I know you said that it was really nice life um, that you had in Hong Kong, but what was it like as an Indian immigrant um, going to school, um, um, going through British education, GCSEs and all levels. <laughs> I did GCSEs myself um, in UK. Um, what was it like? Did what what sort of friends did you have? What were your passions and interests when you were growing up? And mm. like being an immigrant, did that impact you? Did you feel like you were different? Yeah, it's interesting. When I um I never really knew what the word immigrant meant till I moved to North America. Because when I arrived in North America, I was definitely an outsider. But Hong Kong was such a multicultural environment anyway. And you know, from a data point of view, 98% of Hong Kong were Hong Kong Chinese. 2% were expatriates. But that 2% was basically all of the community that I was surrounded by on a, on a regular basis. And so 
it's almost like there was these, there was a lifestyle that was on Hong Kong Island in the sort of the very Western oriented kind of society and schooling. And then there was the rest of Hong Kong, which was on the mainland getting close towards the Chinese border. There was a whole different existence. So for me, Hong Kong was just home. And when I looked around me, there were people from all over the world. I think we had maybe 30 different countries represented at my, my elementary school. So it was just natural to be surrounded with uh, different different cultures all the time, knowing that we were still in a predominantly Chinese part of the world with predominantly British rulers, governors, police officers, you know, all the people in high positions. So I never really felt different in my schooling because we were all from somewhere else. Um, but when I ventured into this for, sort of more remote, you know, you know, mainland, getting close to the Chinese border, then of course, I was like, okay, I'm a, I'm an outsider, but I'm visiting. And as a kid, you know, in Hong Kong, it was so safe. I mean, it's unbelievably safe place. So I think I started taking, you know, taxis alone when I was eight or nine years old. I started taking the public bus, I think when I was probably 11, 10 or 11. And you could almost have go anywhere and not feel worried about your safety. And so I got into Game Boys, Game Boy games. <laughs> and I remember we'd go to this place called Sham Shui Po, which was this, you know, again, deep in, in the, you know, on the mainland in the peninsula. And you take the train there, you take the subway train and you get out and it's just sea of Chinese people. But these huge, um, like multi-story malls that all they did was sell like computer games and electronics. And so, you know, I'd go wandering around and trying to negotiate the best price on the new game that would come out. And sometimes there are knockoff game sometimes the real thing but I always knew that I was an outsider in that environment but mm -hmm. I never felt insecure and you know the thing about Hong Kong Chinese culture there was never like a an outward display of animosity towards these you know foreigners in their in their area right so I never felt that immigrant sort of mentality I just knew that this was part of how I grew up then when I was 15 I moved to Canada and I went to a Canadian high school and all of a sudden I remember feeling, okay, I'm an outsider. I don't talk the same as everybody. In fact, at that time I had a more of a British accent. And mm. so the Canadian kids would make fun of my accent. They'd make fun that, you know, I wasn't Canadian. Um, and that's kind of the first time I started to feel a sense of exclusion that I'm not one of those people. And, you know, 15 is an interesting age. You, you learn how to adapt very easily. So I adapted to the Canadian culture I must have shifted the way I spoke, uh, somehow fit in with the group, um, you know, and sort of always knew I was different, but sort of found a way to just merge into that society. Then I moved to America, right? I came to the U.S. at 18, and all of a sudden I'm being made fun of for my Canadian accent. So, <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> right. <laughs> so then I made another shift um, around 18, 19, um, but I was in the U.S. now at a university, right? The university environment is very multicultural, very international, people from all over the world. And all of a sudden, there was no, none of this feeling of, okay, I'm an outsider. I just felt, again, like this sea of internationalism, multiculturalism at the university campus. Then when I went to Detroit for my first job, that's when I realized, oh, wow, Detroit was, and if anybody has traveled in, in the U.S., they know Detroit was a pretty racist place. There was a lot of cultural challenges. There was a lot of, you know, most of the people in the auto industry and engineering are 
you know, white males that grew up working on their dad's tractor on the farm and now have an engineering job after getting engineering education. And so in that environment, I was the only non-white person, right? There are no women in my workforce where I worked in the engineering ranks and uh, definitely very, I don't think there was another Indian, let alone a person of color. So that's when I felt really like, okay, I am an outsider. I am different here. Um, so I never faced it as a child, interestingly. It was more as in my grown-up years. Mm, that's so interesting. And is your English first language? When I was very young, my mother and father spoke Bengali with me at home. So Bengali was the, the household language. But in Hong Kong, a lot of the Western families, foreign families, we all had um, like help at home, household help. Mm. And so we had what was called a Chinese ama. Ama is, I think it sort of means mother, but it's like a nanny or a caretaker. And so I, you know, as a little boy, there was a Chinese speaking person who helped, you know, prepare food for me, take care of me, you know, take me to school, those kind of things. And so I actually spoke Cantonese as a kid. So I spoke Cantonese and Bengali at home mm -hmm. with a little bit of Hindi, but not really English. And when I went to interview for schools, you know, to, to get admission, you have to do an interview. Some of the schools won't take me because I didn't speak enough English. Mm. around age of five and so one school said okay we'll take you but you have to do some intensive training in English so I had a right. tutor for a couple of years I had an English tutor and uh, I think she was a British woman but I also watched a lot of TV mm. and I loved cowboy movies my my father loved cowboy movies <laughs> fascination mm -hmm. so somehow I learned English from a British uh english tutor and uh and watching lots and lots of cowboy movies so okay. maybe that's where the american accent came so easily <laughs> yeah, later in yes. life yeah that's what i was thinking like oh maybe you had kind of like combination of british and american accents maybe you were growing up but then that's my maybe you pick up american accent quite quickly because of the films you've been watching as ah, a child right and a, yeah as a child as well yeah <laughs> Because I, I know you speak um, multiple languages. Um, so you speak Bengali, um, Cantonese, English, obviously. And you speak Mandarin as well, I think. Yes, yeah, so I, I uh, lost Cantonese because once I got you know deep in the English track and um, mm -hmm. speaking English everywhere. And then, of course, um, as I grew older, we didn't have a Chinese ama anymore. We started to have a Filipino uh, mm. And, and they all spoke English. And so English became the main language that, that was used all around in school and in life in general. I still speak Bengali, but Cantonese sort of faded away. And then my school, uh, we had to learn German. Uh, so that was a requirement from, from first grade, from grade one. Mm -hmm. And so I learned German for about 10 years. When I got into the, you know, we had primary school and secondary school in Hong Kong, similar to the British system. So secondary school, we had to take another language and there's a choice of Mandarin or French. And of course, we were like, who speaks Mandarin? What a useless <laughs> language that is. Let's all learn French. And so most people took French as I did. Mm -hmm. um, and little did we know how the world would shift. Because uh, at, at the time I was growing up, China was closed off to the world. Mm -hmm. So you you know, Mandarin wasn't even a language to consider for business because there's no real interaction with China um, on an international scale. Then later on, so I, yeah, English, Bengali, German, and French. And then I moved to Canada and learned, uh, continued learning French. 
and then what happened was I uh, started my career at um, after MBA school in Daimler Chrysler. So this was mid-career. Mm-hmm. And I worked at, at Mercedes and they sent me to Germany for a while to work. And then they sent me to Beijing uh, for a project. And as part of that, they had a Mandarin tutor to train anyone who's going to go live in, in China working for Daimler to, to learn some Chinese. So mm-hmm. I learned Mandarin as an adult. Um, oh, wow. Oh, okay. And then I lived in Beijing for six months doing mm-hmm. projects at Mercedes. And at that time, I was speaking Chinese daily, speaking Mandarin daily. So Cantonese is a little, little boy, but completely lost. And now as an adult, having to learn Mandarin. And uh, so I still speak, you know, a smattering of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder it was slightly easier for you to learn Mandarin since you had kind of Cantonese um, as you were growing up. I, I know they're, they can be quite different. Um, but yeah, I just wonder. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're naturally really great at you know speaking different languages because I know some people are very talented with languages. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah. Um, so I know you mentioned that you liked fixing things, and that's why you studied engineering. Is that correct? Is, is yeah, that right. did that come from the love of fixing things? Um, and you decided to study that in in US um, because of your parents. Was it more of your parents' encouragement or did you want to move to US and kind of explore new places? Well, I um, I am good at fixing things, but when I was a kid, I was not so good at fixing things. I was good at taking things apart. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I took things apart a lot. So like I just kept taking things apart, you know, like my father bought me a bicycle when I was a kid and I took it apart and then Mm -hmm. I take apart the alarm clock and then I take apart the TV and I I just kept, you know, like my parents would come to my room and there was always some household important device that it was in pieces in my my floor of my bedroom. So so I really was good at, I always wanted to take things apart to figure out how they worked. Mm. I couldn't quite figure out how to put them back together at that age. (laughs) Then I went to high school in Canada. And I loved physics. I really, really loved physics. I, I, you know, it was one of my favorite classes. I got the top grade in physics that the school had ever seen. I got awards for it. And so if you like taking things apart and you like physics, a natural thing is what well, engineering, like it's a good fit. Um, and I also really liked cars. And so I kind of had this idea that I'd love to go and work in the automotive industry, work on cars, help design cars. And so it was sort of that passion of taking things apart and the love of physics and the love of cars that led me to mechanical engineering as a subject. So I studied mechanical engineering um, at Northwestern to the bachelor's degree and then went to work in Detroit in the auto industry where I was taking cars apart all the time as part of my job. Um, <laughs> you know? and, uh, it was like a dream job for a car engineer because I was... Mm engine engineer i used to literally take engines apart put engines back together get them to work get them to run and you know design them for for you know production in in the market and that whole love of sort of how do things work what is the root cause of a problem from an engineering point of view end up becoming a platform for my executive career Mm. because as an executive i was always in charge of technical teams technical projects 
and having to get to the root of what went wrong here. How do we make this better? How do we improve the business? So the same thing that I did with an engine to take apart an engine to find the root cause of a failure in an engine, I could do that with a spreadsheet of financials, you know, financials of a business and say, okay, when something is not working in the business, I can dive into the financials of it, figure out what is the root cause of that. Do we have a cost issue? Do we have a supply chain issue? Do we have a customer satisfaction issue? Um, so that sort of fixing things and taking things apart has been the consistent theme. And now as an executive coach, that's what I do from a leadership point of view. When somebody's a leader in a company and they're trying to figure out how to lead better, I'm able to mm. take apart the organizational structure and the different dynamics of the personalities and the team and identify the root issue and then coach through that to help, you know, make people better leaders. Mm. That's really interesting. I didn't really think about the connection from like, yeah, fixing things. But yeah, I, I, I like that you said it's trying to find the root cause because that's kind of what coaching is about, isn't it? By asking questions and having a conversation with your client, you're trying to um, dig into root cause. And I didn't think about the engineering. I guess you are trying to find out the root cause so you can take parts um, and then fix it because you need to know the problem, the root cause <laughs> to fix it. Risa, it's almost like the the fixing part is the easy part. Like if you have a problem with your car, mm. when you take it to the mechanic, what they do is actually quite simple. You're like, oh, I could replace that. I could take a wrench and unbolt that part and bolt a new part in. That's not a big deal. Why did I pay so much money? But to figure out which part to change, that takes a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. Because otherwise you're replacing the wrong part over and over and it's not fixing mm -hmm. the problem. So getting to the problem is actually the, the biggest challenge. But of course, the mechanic industry doesn't charge for getting to the problem. They charge for fixing the part itself. Mm -hmm. right? So the same thing with, with human behavior, human leadership. You know, most, I mean, my clients are really intelligent people. They know how to fix things. But what is it that needs fixing? And especially when it's in yourself, it's not mm. clear. So through the coaching process, we can kind of uncover through great questions, great inquiry, we can uncover what is the root of a particular leadership challenge. And then as a coach, I don't need to fix it. The, the client knows how to do it. They know exactly mm. what wants to direct it to the right place. But that discovery process, I think, is where the where the magic of coaching really is. Yes, yes, I agree. So how, how long were you working as an engineer and what shifted to executive career? Such a good question, Risa. <laughs> um, so I was working at a company called Roush and we did all of the Ford high horsepower engines. So Ford would have a car that was, let's say, 300 horsepower. And they say, we want to make it 450 horsepower you Roush engineers, you go figure out how to do it. So I would have these projects where it's like, we're taking an engine and we're gonna build it to be a lot more powerful and meet all the requirements that Ford needs to sell it as, as a production vehicle. And I remember all of us engineers had these kind of broken, bust, uh, busted up old cars in the parking lot. And we were you know, working hard. And I remember there are these people that would show up in really nice cars and they were the marketing people. And I was like, what is this job that they have that they drive all these <laughs> nice cars 
And here us engineers are sort of doing all the work, but what are the marketers doing? And discovered they're the ones that were telling us what kind of car to build. So they're saying, this needs to be engine specification. This needs to be the power. This needs to be the way it runs. But they didn't understand the technical side of it at all. And I was like, why do these people get to make all the decisions about what kind of vehicle to build when they don't even understand engineering? I think I can do a better job than them. Yeah. And so I started to realize that most of them had an MBA. That was almost like a qualification in the auto industry. If you had an MBA, a master's in business administration, you were qualified to tell engineers what to build. So right. Was, okay. <laughs> if I get one of those, if I get an MBA, I can tell engineers what to build. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, that became my path. I went to business school at University of Michigan. I focused on marketing. And then I went into the engineering back into the, the auto industry, but now as an executive, where I would study people, I would study global markets, figure out what those markets needed to make a successful business, and then pitch the business case to the executive team, get it approved, and then tell the engineers what kind of vehicle to build. So that was like, you know, marketing meets engineering, technical engineering meets human behavior. Mm, so interesting. I didn't know that you need to have MBA to be qualified to tell engineers what to do. <laughs> okay, so how long were you in executive team until you decided that you want to start building your own coaching practice? And I guess you were coaching, I guess, your team already? while you were in executive team already? Well, it's not coaching. And, and you know, I work with a lot of executives now. I mean, most of them are leading. They're, they're telling, like, you do mm -hmm. this, you do that, you should do this. So most executive roles, especially in the auto industry, very traditional management style, um, you tell people what to do. That's sort of the, the, the role. And you're doing a lot of persuading and convincing people to your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. That's the old school way of management. In, in the old days, you were rewarded for your problem-solving abilities. Today, top management needs to be a facilitator of problem-solving. They need to cultivate and believe in people to solve the problems within their team. So mm -hmm. rather than being the best problem-solver, you want to be the best facilitator of problem-solving. And a lot of innovation in the auto industry was lost because all of the decision-making went up the chain to the top executives and not from rank-and-file innovation, right? So I worked, um, to your question, I worked, uh, I spent about 20 years in the corporate world. So my career was in engineering and then in the executive ranks. And uh, I went through the automotive um, to sort of a, a middle management position. And then I had opportunity in the tech industry to really rise up. And so mm -hmm. I left automotive and came to LA to work in the tech industry and managed some teams and ended up starting a couple of divisions at a, at a big tech company. And I had a lot of success as a tech executive because I had this sort of roll up your sleeves, get it done attitude, but also understand how to work with the engineers, but also understand what does the market really want? So my sweet spot was understanding consumer needs and building the right product for the market. That was sort of what I built my career on. And um, I worked at a company where we uh, quintupled the stock price in the space of two years that I ran their product innovation group. And so I got you know great sort of stock options, cashed out of it and decided, what am I gonna do now? Like, what's my next big thing? 
And, you know, I'm in California, people do startups, like, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, maybe I can do a startup, maybe that's the dream. That's the multi-million dollar exit story. Like, let me start a business. I understand consumer insight. I know how to build a product. I can build a team. And so me and a, f a friend, um, two of us started a, a tech startup and built up a, a small company and started raising financing and capital for that. So I thought my dream was really, you know, make it big in the California tech industry as a tech startup. Mm -hmm. And I went through fundraising, uh, pitching venture capitals, building a team, building product, mm -hmm. uh, selling product, getting to early revenue. I mean, I sat in the room where Uber was funded. Right? Like I sat in that very conference room with the executive, with the venture capitalist who funded Uber, right? Mm -hmm. I had some amazing experiences, um, but I realized uh, through the startup experience, you you face a lot. Like if, if any of you, have, if any of your listeners have, followed a startup entrepreneur's journey it's a really tough journey you are squeezed every last drop of your energy is squeezed <laughs> to try to make that company work and um in the startup what what was the product that you're building so we built um, a type of software that monitors how internet connected devices are operating mm -hmm. so anything like uh like give you example a printer it's connected to the internet these days and the printer manufacturer wants to know at any time how all of their products are doing in the field. And so we developed a little piece of software that would sit on any internet connected device, take all the operational data and put it up to the cloud. So mm -hmm. you, the product manufacturer, could see how all of your products were performing across the planet at any given time. So it was a B2B uh, product idea. And we got some early, uh, in fact, one of our early customers was a printer manufacturer. Mm -hmm. um, and then some medical devices and some other um, sort of a mix of, you know, um, TV equipment, like uh, internet connected TV equipment, but basically giving operational data so that they could make better product decisions in the future. The idea was good. Uh, we got some early customers. We started to raise capital. We had a few customers that started to replicate the technology in-house. So that was really tough. It was a, a need for sure. But then our, our customers started trying to build it themselves. And then, the worst part of it was we were raising capital and my board came to me and said that you're not gonna be able to raise money for this company because the investors do not like the CEO and founder of the company. So my partner was the CEO of the company. He was the one who had the ideas and the brains of the technology and they just couldn't stand him. <laughs> He's my friend, I liked him. Yeah. And the word they said to me was Vish, he's not coachable he's not coachable and so you have to get rid of him you have to take the company over and build a new team and then we'll consider investing in the company so i didn't at the time understand what does coachability have to do with building a business if the guy's smart and the guy's competent and he's good and knows what he's doing he's built the technology that's all that matters why does he need to be coachable now i realize that if he's not coachable he doesn't change his ways he doesn't respond and he doesn't respond and adapt based on the investor and stakeholder input so at the time you know as a good soldier i followed orders right the board said you need to get rid of him so i got rid of him he's my friend but you have to do what you have to do so i got lawyers involved and we got it was like a divorce agreement i did mm. cut him out of the company strip of his equity strip him of his board seat restructure the company i took it over as a ceo got a different team in place 
it was really ugly, Lucrisa. It was like the most horrible thing I ever did in my life. Mm. But it's what I felt I had to do in order for the company to survive. And I had this feeling that this is not, this is not the life I want. I don't want to operate this way. It's not who I am. I did it because I thought I had to, but it just felt really gross inside. How did your friend react when you told him that he needs to go? It was very ugly. Yeah, it was very ugly. It was, it was a horrible time. It's a horrible time. I mean, I I completely deflated him. I burnt all the trust that we had. Um, mm. You know, I was like the evil, bad corporate guy. Like all the bad things you hear about how executives behave, I did all of those things. So, <laughs> like, it, was, it was horrific. Yeah. And, you know, I realized that, that I'm not cut out mm. for that. Like, at the end of the day, I'm not that. And um, there was an event that happened sometime after that where one of my lead investors had a family emergency and said that he'd have to back out of the lead of investing. And I thought, you know what, this is my out. This is my way to get out of this, this situation. So I ended up turning down the investment and saying to the board that I don't care what you guys want. I'm bringing my, my partner back on. I'm going to let him take it over, but this is not what I want to do. I'm going to exit and do something else. So it was around that sort of collapsing, you know, when I said, okay, I, let's bring in my old founder. Let's bring him back in. I apologized to him. I lots and lots of happy hours later became friends again with him. No. <laughs> uh, had him take the company over and I exited. I mm-hmm. said, you take over, do what you want. I'm not getting in the way. I got rid of the the, the board influence on us. Um, and I decided to really go into my heart and soul passion, which was coaching. Because at the time of all this startup stuff, I had people reaching out saying, hey, Vish, I got this new role. I'm in charge of blah, blah, blah. Would you consider coaching me? And mm. now the second time I'm hearing this word coaching, I'm told my founder is not coachable. And now people ask me to coach them. I'm like, all right, sure, I'll coach you. You know, I didn't really know what coaching was, Reese. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, I'll coach you. And so I coached whatever way I thought was appropriate. And I would get referrals. And so now all of a sudden I've got this startup misery on one side and this really fulfilling, satisfying coaching practice that's getting referrals and growing by the week. And so I had to really think like, what is it that I want to do in my life here? I've got this miserable startup journey or this really exciting, fulfilling coaching practice that's budding. Mm, Wow. And um, how long ago was this? This was about, um, all of this was probably about six years ago. Yeah, six, seven okay. years. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am pleased to hear that um, your friend is back on <laughs> and running the company now and the company's still going, I guess. <laughs> well, no, he, or, so no? I, think oh, okay. he, I think the board was right. He ran the mm. company to the ground. <laughs> so all right, as soon okay. as I stepped away from it and he kind of mm. took it over, it just sort of, he started upsetting the customers. We started losing customers. He, I mean, I think the board read him right. They were correct, mm. um, but he ran it. And I, and I had already at that point sort of washed my hands of it. I lost attachment. I was like, whatever happens, happens. Um, he did end up getting a really big job um, at a tech company, one mm-hmm. of the biggest ones out there. And uh, a lot of the technology we built, he replicated there. So it actually gave him a great outcome. He ended up with a very senior level job at at a tech company that everybody knows. And, uh, you know, we're still in touch. And I coached him along the way as well. But meanwhile, I was able to build my coaching practice um, Mm. because I realized like that really is my my calling. 
And so when this uh, was going on, I decided to enroll in the executive coach training program at UC Berkeley. And that, you know, completely changed my life. That was like, okay, this is what coaching is. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. This is what I want to dedicate my life to. And so then I went, um, then I understood what coaching really is. And then I started bringing that into my coaching practice. And of course, since then, the coaching practice has grown a lot. Wow, amazing. <laughs> and when did you take your yoga teacher training in India? And yeah, how did that go about in terms of bringing Ayurveda and Vedic astrology into your coaching? Great question. So, um, you know, because I, you know, as I grew up in Hong Kong, my, my Indian parents, a lot of Indian culture at home, I grew up watching my dad do yoga every morning. Oh, every, cool. Every morning. <laughs> And uh, when when any of your listeners read my book, uh, The Business Casual mm -hmm. Yogi, in the book, I talk about seeing that, you know, I grew up and watched my dad do yoga every morning. And I went to him and I asked him, you know, Dad, can you teach me yoga? And he said, well, you know, this is a very serious subject. This is not something you just casually learn. You have to find the right teacher. It's not something that dad just teaches you. You have to find the right teacher. And when you're of the right age, you go into India, you find the right teacher, and then you'll learn it properly. So, you know, I had to wait and be patient. And it was after I finished my university that I traveled to India, backpacking solo around India. And I met Yogrishi Vishwaketu, who's been my yoga teacher for 22 years now, right? 23 years. And I learned yoga the right way from him. Mm -hmm. So before I started my corporate career, but after university, I learned yoga from a Himalayan yoga master. And I kept a yoga practice up throughout the ups and downs of my corporate career. Every morning I got up, did my yoga practice, did my asana, did my meditation, did my pranayama, poured water in and out of my nostrils, gel my <laughs> Like I maintained it all the way through. And then when, you know, 20 years later, when the startup, you know, collapse was happening and I started to think about, you know, like here's this coaching practice is growing. I started to ask myself, what do I want to be as a coach? Like what is special about the way I coach? Yes, I've got executive experience. I'm an MBA. I've got a ton of experience as a startup executive, as a big corporate executive, as a small business engineer. Who am I as a coach? I started to realize I have this huge 20-year background of knowledge of yoga. And everything I was learning in the yoga system seemed to have a parallel to everything that they train executives on to be better leaders. I started to see a parallel between the yoga philosophy and executive leadership philosophy. And that's when it sort of clicked that there maybe is a way to combine these. So I set up on a path to do my coach, executive coach training and do a yoga teacher training and learn the mind body system that's connected to yoga, which is Ayurveda and combine it all into my own thing. And so I went to the Chopra Center and studied to be a meditation teacher there and a Ayurvedic teacher there. Then I went to India with Yogi Shivishoketu. Finally, 20 <laughs> years later, I'm like, I'm here. I'm ready to learn to be a yoga teacher. And so I did the yoga teacher training. And then, of course, I did the UC Berkeley coach, uh, executive coach training. So I combined all that together and offered this unique sort of East meets West approach to executive coaching, which is what I do now. Then um, along the way, one of my teachers, uh, Dr. Suhas, who's an Ayurvedic doctor, I was telling him how I'm using Ayurveda as a way to understand leadership qualities better. 
how does somebody lead? What is their approach to leadership? And what should be the right diet and lifestyle to support the specific type of job and specific type of leader that they are? So this is already like, you know, stretching the boundaries. Like Ayurvedic medicine that is used for disease recognition and healing, applying that as a tool for leadership development. And what's the healthy lifestyle to live to support your leadership journey? Mm. And he said, well, you know, as you're studying people, a better way to understand what's really going on is to look at their Vedic astrology chart. And at that point, I said, that sounds wacko. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> look at an astrology chart, that whole hocus pocus horoscope thing. <laughs> He's like, no, no, you, this is a system. There's a science here. It's not the Western system. It's not this newspaper horoscope. In fact, the Western system, the math is wrong. When the Westerner tells you, oh, your son is in Gemini or whatever, it's actually not there. It's not accurate to space. But if you use the right math, which the Indian system uses, and you look at the moment somebody is born, based on the moment of their birth and where the planets were in the sky, you can tell a lot about their life journey. You can tell about their leadership style. You can tell about their health issues. So he taught me how to start looking at Vedic astrology charts. And I'm an engineer by training, so I'm really skeptical. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's try it. So I sit down with a client, and I say, oh, this is I, this is what I see in your birth chart. And people were open to it. It's California, after all. So people were open to the idea, my initial clients. And I start telling them things about the way they lead. And they were like, how do you know that? That's 100% correct. How do you know that? And I would say, well, maybe it was just a lucky guess. <laughs> but after, you know, 20, 30, 40 times of people like, how do you know that? That is 100% exactly how I lead. That is exactly the health issue I'm having. Wow, that's exactly the time I had this big issue happen at work. I'm starting to think, wow, this is starting to prove itself. And so I got deeper into Vedic astrology from that because it proved to me that it was actually a very accurate system to help people understand themselves better and improve themselves. And so I went deeper and deeper into Vedic astrology. And now I teach Vedic astrology um, and I use it regularly in my practice. And you'll be surprised how many senior level people all over the world that I coach rely on Vedic astrology as part of their uh, self-awareness tool and their decision-making tool, actually. That's, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about, like, yeah, about your executive clients. Like what I know you mentioned that in California, they are quite open to knowing all the things so and you meant you now mentioned that you now coach and work with people all over the world are they initially skeptical or are they quite open already or do you kind of choose people um whether you want to use Vedic astrology in your coaching or not how, how do you determine whether the person is kind yeah. of in the right state and place to understand that i guess i'm continually surprised because i'm a little bit more conservative and you know as i said i approach this whole thing with skepticism but i remember having a client that worked for a uh, boston scientific and uh you know they were a senior uh director in the sales group and they came to me for coaching around growing their business growing the business that they're managing and so we were looking at the PL, the profit loss statement we we're looking at the excel spreadsheet to try to figure out what's going on with the business and then, you know, helping him understand some leadership challenges within the group and who to keep, who to let go. And I think it was like the fifth session. And I'm, you know, like 
in hardcore businessy mode. He said, Vish, when are you going to do that planet thing with me? I'm like, <laughs> for it. I was like, what planet thing? He's like, you know, when you look at you're born and this and that. He's like, my person that recommended you me said this. And I was like, oh, that's, oh, yes, sure. And so I found that clients sort of expect it in some ways and they bring it up first. Mm. And then the other approach is somebody says, look, I'm in a really tough spot. I just can't figure out. I've tried everything. I don't know what else to do. Then I say, okay, let me try this other approach on you and see what you think. And usually, you know, quickly they, they're like, wow, this, this system makes sense. But I'm also finding, so on a global basis, I have clients that are executives, small business owners, and just normal people, just people who are just trying to, you know, make it through life. And they're coming for, for insight and advice trying to understand what is their journey, why are things happening the way they're happening, what can they do about it, coming up with solutions to manage through. So it's becoming a very prominent part of my work is the, the Vedic astrology insight as a, as a tool to help people navigate life, right? But also what I'm finding is when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'm at a loss, I really don't know what to do, or I have a medical issue and the doctors don't know what's going on, I'm able to at least root cause it because back to my engineering training, I can say, let me figure out, okay, you tell me what the issue is. I'm going to use your Vedic astrology chart, to try to figure out the root cause planet that's at fault here, and then give you a remedy to tackle that planet on a karmic level. So you've tried the body treatments, you've tried this mind treatments, but now we're going to try a karmic approach. And it's usually very effective. And that's when people are like, wow, this was miraculous. This, this, you fixed this big problem in my life. And that's when people start to say, you know what, go, go meet Vish. He'll be able to help you with something. Um, so I think it's a combination of the root cause problem solving engineering skills with this, you know, remarkable tool of Vedic astrology that just helps us understand our journey in this lifetime. Mm. Yes. I personally had um, Vedic astrology consultation with you and I, yeah, ever since I've been really fascinated by it. And yeah, it's like everything you said is like so true as well. So like, yeah, I definitely like to kind of use, you know, yoga, Ayurveda and Vedic astrology into like how I live my life and how I navigate my life. So I, I do find it really fascinating to understand Vedic astrology. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about your book. <laughs> which I bought and read a couple of years ago, I think now. Um, so I, I love to know what inspired you to write this book. Well, I um, I always saw this divide in these two, almost these two universes. There is the corporate universe and there's the yoga universe, right? And Risa, I think you've experienced the yoga world. You know, people are dancing and singing and they're ecstatic and they're happy and they're doing mantras and they're doing fire pujas and they're doing yoga asanas and breathing and there's this very free way of living and access to very powerful transformational knowledge and then there's this other tribe or universe that's the corporate world you're in the office you're in your cubicle you're in your office you're wearing your business casual clothes you're you know doing having meetings and strategy and whiteboard sessions but you're striving to develop yourself as well through that leadership journey on the corporate side and I felt there's these two different worlds and they never come together. And I felt like I was spending time in both worlds. I'm in corporate trainings and executive retreats and executive 
strategy sessions and then I'm in yoga ashrams and standing on my head and pouring water through my nostrils <laughs> and, and how can I bridge these two worlds since I'm a part of both I have one foot in the corporate world one part in the leadership world regular material life material society and one foot in the spiritual world right can I bridge these two and I remember um, there was a yoga event, the big yoga festival called Bhakti Fest in California that happens every year. And my yoga teacher, Yogi Shivishwaketu, comes and teaches. And he was teaching this big class. And I was volunteering to assist him at the class. And, you know, there's 140 people. They're all doing yoga. He's teaching up on the platform. I'm adjusting people. Those are the days when you actually adjusted people to yoga. <laughs> now you have to like use some telepathy or something to adjust people. But in the old days, you'd say, okay, you know what? Your hip's not placed right. Your knee's off. Your foot's angle's off. And I was going through that and I thought, how do I bring the magic of what's happening in this yoga hall to the corporate boardroom? Maybe there's an opportunity here for Vishwa and I to collaborate. Vishwa Ketu is the yoga master, the Himalayan yoga master, literally grew up and meditating in caves, grew up under traditional guru tradition of Indian yoga lineage. And here I am, an Indian of origin, Indian by origin, understanding the system at a DNA level in my soul and my heritage, but also adapted to the Western way of living, adapted to Western society. And so I'm a lot more approachable for the Western person than a hardcore yogi, right? Like a, you know, somebody who's from the corporate world may be turned off by the way yoga centers operate like it's too mm. Google. can i bridge those so after the class was over i pitched vishwa ketu on this collaboration idea can we do this together and he loved it and it just so happened that yoga festival the publisher of his first book had a booth there and the owner of the publishing company happened to be visiting you know that day and so i came up with a book proposal with a chapter outline literally that afternoon. Wow. <laughs> I did it on my iPad and then I said, Vishwa, let's go. And I pitched the, you know, the first person I saw at the publishing tent, his name was Philip. I was like, Philip, I got this idea. And he looked at it, he says, you know what, this is good. Let's take it to the owner. And so we took it to the owner. I showed the idea and they loved the idea. And so that's sort of how the, the inspiration happened at a yoga festival. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, just being curious now, did you see this happening in your chart? <laughs> Do you look at your chart, your own chart? Um, well, at the time, <laughs> I didn't know charts. You know, at that time, oh, okay. when I wrote the book, I wasn't that deep into Vedic astrology. Oh, all right. I didn't, um, I had the basic knowledge mm -hmm. at the time that I pitched it, but, you know, it wasn't that deep a part of who I was. Now, if I look at the chart, it's obvious. Like, it does. There's a book. <laughs> And actually, looking at my chart, there's a book that will come out uh, late, probably next year sometime. Oh. So likely this fall will be the start of another very good period for a book to be published. So I thought, okay, there's the chart. I saw it. it looks like another book's coming. Let's see what happens. And I'll kid you not, um, two months ago, I got a call from my publisher wanting to meet. I was like, I wonder what the meeting's about. And they said, hey, we want you to think about writing another book on astrology. And wow. So, we're in discussions now. We'll see where it goes. Um, I don't know if it'll work out or not. We're still in, in discussions. But the chart indicates that there will be a book that will come out. So perhaps it'll be an astrology book. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm looking forward to that book. <laughs> so I do, I do uh, urge your listeners to pick up a copy of The Business Casual Yogi. 
it it is a book that is taking some very powerful ancient wisdom and putting it in the form of relevancy to our modern world, leadership in the modern world. How do you advance your career? How do you take care of your health with all the pressures of the modern world, leveraging this ancient wisdom? So it is really an East meets West, a yogi meets business leader type of a book. Um, definitely for a hardcore yogi, the book has all of the things that explain the depths of yoga philosophy. Mm. But leader, it takes that philosophy and applies it very specifically to improving your success and your happiness in life. Yes, yeah, I, I, I loved your book and I will definitely um, link in the short note and so people can purchase your book. Um, so I know we got to wrap up quite soon. So I just like to ask a couple of final questions. So what's the best advice you have ever received? Hmm. I'm not sure where the advice came from, and I'm sure it's been given to me in many different ways. Um, as definitely from the yoga system and, and from, from various gurus and teachers that I've had. But it's really learning to let go and trust, you know. I think lately I've been saying to myself, you know, when I was in the business world, it's like, okay, you've got this. You can do this. You've got this. But now I'm sort of letting go and realizing it's not me who's got it. There's some more divine force that's got me. So I think I'm learning you can set your goals, you can set your strategy of whatever you want to do, but at some point you sort of have to let go and surrender to a higher power. In yoga, we call this Ishwar Pranidhan, Ishwar Pranidhan. And it means that I'm surrendering that everything will work out the way it's supposed to work out. So, you know, I tend to be, because I'm an engineer, I over-engineer my life. I try yeah. to take control of everything, make it happen the way I need it to. And in a way, I fought my true calling for decades, right? And can I just find a way to ease up a little bit and trust that everything's working out the way it needs to work out? That the right people are showing up at the right time, the right conversations are happening at the right time, just being the open outcome. Like what a beautiful conversation we've had today. It was the right conversation at the right time with the right people. And it mm -hmm. all worked in a divine way. It wasn't planned, right? Our subject wasn't planned. Where this conversation wasn't, wasn't planned. And so can you find a way to ease into life and just be open to outcome? Mm, yes, I, I love that advice. And I try my best to <laughs> surrender yeah. and trust. But um, I, I would love to know um, for people like myself, who's very pizza and very impatient, <laughs> how can people develop this? trust that everything's going to work out the you know the, the the way it should do and just letting it go how can what sort of practice do you recommend so people can start trusting mm. the higher power so pitta is the ayurvedic dosha that is fiery right so you you know pitta people generally are in the leadership roles because you're fiery you like to get things done you like to be task focused, you have a task list, you start your day with a task list, if you don't get through the task list, you're upset, I didn't get my task done, you want things to be precise, you communicate in a direct way. If you go from Ayurveda into Jyotish, Vedic astrology, Pitta is a Martian quality, 
It's a Mars energy. And Mars is the planet of executive ability. Somebody has a strong Mars, they make a great executive. It's, you know, conquer, make things happen. It's the command and control. It's accomplishment, achievement. So typically people with strong Mars have a resume that is full of accomplishments, achievements, and they define themselves by that achievement and accomplishment. Mars also rules blood and the heart. And so T people who are very high achievement oriented and very go, go, go tend to have heart issues, right? I've had two bosses in my life that had heart attacks. So I know this firsthand, like you go, 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 Pitta in excess, Mars mm -hmm. in excess leads to blood and heart issues. So the key out of it is actually through the heart as well. The key to transcend this Pitta energy or this Martian energy is to actually connect to the heart. And so for a Pitta person, any kind of heart-centered practice becomes very powerful. You'll mm -hmm. notice that a Pitta person likes to do yoga and they will write a list of yoga exercise they have to do like i have to do this asana, do this asana, do this asana <laughs> and i need to hold it for eight breaths and i need to do this long and if i didn't do it then i failed they need to shift to more of a bhakti practice bhakti meaning a devotional practice some kind of worship some kind of thing where they just let go and feel the divine energy and for some people that may be worshiping like some kind of a religious worship where they open their heart up for some people it might just be listening to music that opens their heart when was what was the last song that you heard that brought you to tears and opened up your heart? Play that song regularly and open your heart to it. Let it let it flow. Let the tears come. Open up the heart. And that connection, once you establish that heart connection, every time you feel like taking control, which is a Martian thing, you realize the other side of it is letting go of control and letting the heart connect to a higher power and let the divine guide as it needs to guide. Thank you. Thank you. That was really amazing advice. And I, I, I'm, as I was listening to you talking about um, yoga practice, I'm guilty of that. Like if I, I, I have this sequence that I've created for myself and if I don't do this yoga pose because I, I didn't have enough time, I feel like I'm a failure. That's right. <laughs> and yes, I'll have to take your advice and yeah. listen to that heart opening music and more heart opening yoga poses. So thank you so much for reminding me that as well. Yeah. Okay, so final question. So what advice would you give to those who are trying to follow their passions, but feeling challenged to do so? I think we all have this dream that you can follow your passion and make a good living from it. Just do what you love and the money will follow. That's what people say. I don't think it always works that way. I, I just don't think that that's available to everybody. We all have different work to do. And so in the Vedic system, and in, in, in my book, I wrote about this, these four aims of life, artha, kama, uh, dharma, and moksha. And the idea is that you have to do something in your life that earns money. You have to ha make a good living so you can buy yourself nice things, you can buy yourself nice food, organic food, whatever it is, have a nice roof over your head, you know, have money to spend to go do fun things. So that's artha. You have to earn. Kama is having pleasure, having fun in life. Like make sure you have regular fun, like get together with friends, have a good time, go on a date, go on a dinner, go on a vacation, all of these things. 
then dharma is honoring your higher purpose. So it puts it in a separate category. Indulge in your passions on a regular basis. Then finally, there's moksha, which is your spiritual practices. Do your spiritual practices. So there are these different buckets. And you need to make sure that you're doing some things in life that earn, some things that are fun, some things that are honoring your inner calling, and some things that are spiritual. It's not often for everybody that they intersect, where you get to do what you love and you earn from it 100%. It doesn't mm. work out that way. And so even in people that do follow their passions, and let's say somebody has a passion business, I was coaching somebody yesterday who has a business that are all around their lifestyle passions. Yet, in order to make the finances work, they have to do some things that are not aligned to their passion. And that's just okay. Because the things that you do that aren't aligned to your passion, they give you income that becomes a platform to pursue your passions. Mm. So, okay, if you're miserable in your job, that's okay. At least it's earning money, right? You can't be like, well, I need the dream job and need to make money off of it. Sometimes you have not such a dream job, but it provides a platform to then offer your dream. So think about things in your life that you would do for free, that you just love so much. You lose track of time and space. You just love doing it. You would pay people to do that. That's your passion. Go do that. You may not earn from it, but at least you're fulfilling this duty that you have to indulge in your passions. Does that answer it, Risa? Yes, yeah, thank you so much. And yes, um, I, I remember reading your book about it. And um, the four aims of goal is where I think I initially learned from your book, and I got more into it and yeah, learned it and got more understanding of it. And I really love the way you explained about not everyone can follow their passions and earn money from it well like enough money to live their kind of lifestyle that they want and before I met you like people I was following is all about yeah follow your passion and you know everything will follow so it was really refreshing to hear that and read your book as well so thank you so much for sharing that with all of us the listeners um wow thank you so much Bish. i really enjoyed our conversation i knew it would be really interesting because you've got such an amazing kind of background and your career and you know with yoga ayurveda and vedic astrology a lot of our listeners um really want to learn about yoga ayurveda and i think vedic astrology is quite a new thing for my listeners but i'm yeah i'm still learning i did take your course <laughs> and i do like to continue um maybe in the next couple of years but yeah it, it was really interesting and i love learning vedic astrology it is quite overwhelming though <laughs> it's a lot of things that you need to learn um so if people want to get in touch with you where can people find you um yeah risa this was just such a fun conversation <laughs> so many directions from hong kong to canada to us to engineering to auto industry tech industry yoga vedic astrology ayurveda what a fun time thank you for having me uh to find me my website is headandheartinsights.com so in there you can see all the services i offer from a coaching point of view of course you can just google my name vish chatterjee or you can Google Business Casual Yogi. The book is available on anywhere you find books. Um, so you can find me quite easily. I've, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, all around the Business Casual Yogi. 
Thank you, Vish. I'll add all the links in the show notes so everyone knows where to find you. Well, thank you so much, Vish, for your time and this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Risa. Have a lovely day. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Risa. Thank you so much. Great to be on your show. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Fish. I thought it was really interesting and really inspiring to hear his life journey. If you are curious to learn more about his approach, I highly recommend reading his book, The Business Kajol Yogi. I hope you have a wonderful day and I'll see you in the next episode. 